Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the regular Board of Commissioners Board, Multnomah County Board of Commissioners Board Briefing. Commissioner Lori Stegman is excused, and I want to take this opportunity to welcome our newest commissioner, uh, Commissioner Jesse Beeson, who is um, ably stepping in to um, uh, conclude the term of uh, former Commissioner Jaya Paul until, um, until we have a permanent replacement. So thank you so much for stepping in and serving your community in this way. Um, we are very glad to have you here. And as you get you into this new role, anything you need, please feel free to, to reach out to me, my team, the rest of the board um, to help you. So much experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody who also can share the newbie, the newbie experience and, uh, and give some good tips based on their experience. Um, so today's um, meeting is a hybrid board meeting. I don't know, do we have anyone hybrid today? No, so we're just, so actually today's will be a um, in-person meeting um, for all presenters, no presenters. Um, we're gonna just, um, we're just gonna have a conversation today for this one. So, um, so we will, um, this will be a chance for all of us to just um, share a little bit about the experience that we have from um, some of the, um, conferences we've gone to, the, the um, visits that we've gone to, and really, I think, have a conversation then about how we can connect it to the work that we're doing now, whether we're talking about sobering stabilization, behavioral health investments, as we're talking about our partnerships with um, uh, other organizations and jurisdictions on the work that needs to be done. So looking forward to a, a um, short but a, a good meeting today. So um, we're gonna go ahead and start, and I don't know, um, if Commissioner Myron is, um, okay, okay, um, so we will go ahead and I'll just go ahead and um, start a little bit, yeah, so we can just jump in. So um, we had, um, and I also wanted to share that um, Commissioner Stegman is excused, she's um, not able to make it um, today, but she um, had um, an experience through the NACO, the um, National Association for County Elected Officials, um, that she went on where they had um, visited um, and learned about um, a receiving center. And that is also something, so when she gets back, I do want her to also have the opportunity to share about her experience with that. Um, that's, that's actually something that is um, similar in many ways to Sobering Center, so I think that would provide some good insight um, to the work that you're doing, um, Commissioner Brim Edwards, um, and I know that she'll wanna um, share that. So we'll, we'll definitely have a, a continued conversation around that. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was the, the trip that I had um, gone on uh, a, a few weeks ago with um, a delegation of about 24 people from the state of Oregon to Portugal to um, learn about the system that they've set up there to respond to um, drug use, a drug crisis that they have, um, and the decriminalization work that they've done there. And um, the folks who went on the trip were a mix of elected officials. There was myself, there were state representatives, state senators, there were um, law enforcement um, folks, so we had um, the um, police officers from both the Salem and the Portland um, Police Departments who um, attended the trip. We had um, folks from the District Attorney's Office, from the Department of Justice. Um, there were uh, many providers who 
Um, our uh, Measure 110 recipients do work with folks who are um, experiencing addiction um, and other behavioral health challenges. Um, we had some drug policy experts that were there on the trip. So it was a very diverse group that went um, on this trip. And um, I would say everybody who went there um, was there to learn. Um, but we had different opinions, I would say, in terms of the approach um, <clears throat> to what's happening here and what's what's um, and what they were doing in Portugal. So just to give you some background on what we learned in Portugal, they have um, decriminalized back in 2001, but their investments in the system that they've set up to respond to their drug crisis has actually preceded that by decades. And so one of the things that we um, learned was that they had, um, when, they, when they moved to become a democracy, um, there was um, kind of the opening up of things. Um, they, they had been, um, they had actually been a colonizer for different countries and as um, they had folks who were soldiers who came back, as they had criminal elements that came in, they actually saw an increase in, um, in marijuana use and heroin use in the country. And in a lot of ways, they had equated um, drugs with freedom in some ways because of the timing of things. And so it became very prevalent in their community. In fact, at one time, they had a statistic that there were 10% of the population of the country was addicted to heroin. So when they had, um, so when, when this was a kind of a national crisis, and so they recognized that they needed to make some serious investments at the national level to respond to this. So they created a system where they invested a lot in um, a, a healthcare response to drugs in setting up um, um, resources in the country. Um, it, and it, there wasn't a lot of pushback. There was a lot of understanding because, um, as, as um, one of the people said, like there, is, there was so much that um, everybody knew some, there was so much drug use that everybody knew somebody who was, who was addicted or not. So there was a lot of buy-in to this um, and setting up a, a health-based response to this, but they still, um, but drugs were still illegal. Um, in, in 1999, the, um, <clears throat> the prime um, minister um, actually directed a small group of about um, 12 people, and that was a range from um, Healthcare practitioners, psychologists, academics, um, to to come together and um, create a policy around decriminalization. And basically, what the, the their marching orders were: the only thing that it has to do is um, abide by the UN um, doctrines around around drug use. So they spent. Um, about a year of work coming up with this. They did tons of community outreach all over the country. They had a lot of, um, a lot of meetings about what this should look like. They consulted with experts. Um, and they put forward a proposal for decriminalization to the parliament um, in, I think it was in 2000, and parliament accepted the whole thing. They accepted it whole cloth. And so that passed in 2001. But one of the things that was they were really clear about was that decriminalization was the least important thing that they did in terms of the investments that they were making in response to the drug crisis, right? They had set up um, a system where people had access to all sorts of different healthcare um, options. They looked at drug use and um, made investments 
across the board, whether it was um, prevention, whether it was harm reduction, whether it was treatment, whether it was recovery efforts, connection, and then connections to a broader range of social services. So a lot of that were, were things that had been built, but when, they, when the decriminalization um, law was passed in 2001, there were actually like 60 other um, legal measures that were passed at the same time that were setting up um, these kinds of investments in the system as a whole. So that was one thing that we have, a, we have a lot of talk, I think, here locally about decriminalization and what it means, but the thing that was most impactful for me and I think for many others on the trip was that there was an entire system of care that was also created to respond to people's needs. Um, <clears throat> and they truly see it as a, as a healthcare issue. So um, how, how the decriminalization works is if you are somebody who is found with um, uh, an amount of drugs that is um, below a certain criteria, so it's you know, considered for your personal use, then you will receive um, a notice from a police officer saying that you have to engage with a, dis a dissuasion commission. And there are 18 different regional dissuasion commissions throughout the country. Um, what, when, and you have to, basically you have to get the notice um, to go within like a 24-hour period, and then you have, I think it's like um, like 72 hours to actually meet with the dissuasion commission. So it's a very fast, um, a fast-paced um, engagement with somebody who has been cited. They they differentiate in how they treat people who are considered addicted and people who are considered non-addicted. So, for instance, if you are, um, and the and the way that they decide this is that there is a. 45-minute uh, interview that takes place with the psychologist, with the nurse, with the social worker, with really experts in the field to, um, they say it's not like a court appearance, it's like a doctor's appointment. You spend time um, talking with those and they, and that group is able to come up with kind of a response plan for you. Um, and then there's a piece where um, there is an administrative piece of this again because um, it has not been made legal, it is just been decriminalized, so there is an administrative piece where there's a, a, a short procedure where they make sure that yes, indeed, the amount you had was um, below the threshold, so it wasn't considered a drug dealing, because drug dealing is still very much a criminal activity <clears throat> and is treated as such. Um, and then they will, um, so if you are an addict and you are offered treatment, then, um, then and you take advantage of the treatment, then there are no sanctions against you. If you are a non-addict, if they've determined that, then there might be some kind of sanctions. Um, but this, this can range from uh, seeing a social worker, visiting an employment center, contacting somebody about getting access to housing. Um, sanctions aren't imposed on those addicted users to go through treatment. Fines are not imposed on, on addicted users um, as well. Um, so all of these things are really um, there to create a system of connecting people. When this program first got started, there was actually no wait list to get connected with, with these kinds of treatment options. So um, treatment or resources, there were no options. Um, now there is um, a wait list to get into treatment, and part of it, there were a couple different reasons they said that. They said um, several years ago, they actually um, um, took um, and I will, I will pass this around, um, <clears throat> um, SICAD, which is the um, it's the minister, uh, the ministry, it's a per, um, part of the Ministry of Health that deals with addictive behaviors and dependencies. They, they split off some of the work into two different areas, so the, um, the treatment and some of the services as well as the, um, 
uh, the administration, and now they're, they're in the process of bringing them back together because they just saw better outcomes um, with that. Um, but they're also having a huge workforce shortage, and that's one of the things that they said is why there are these um, wait lists that are happening now is because um, we have, you know, there are a lack of providers, so there are not as many doctors or nurses or so, you know, and that resonated with me and with a lot of people on the trip because we know that we are also seeing, you know, um, shortages in our in our healthcare field of workforce, and so that is that is something that is um, causing there to be. Um, additional um, additional um, backlogs of folks. Um, but the outcomes that they have are very um, impressive. So the, especially when you look at overdoses, for instance. So they have, um, Portugal has some of the lowest overdo overdose races, uh, uh, um, rates in the, um, in the European Union. And just to compare their 74 deaths by overdose last year compared to our in Oregon, um, 1,171, right? So the, the investments that they have made, not just in treatment, but in harm reduction and medically assisted treatment, all of that has been um, really impactful. So we were able to visit and speak with some of the people who were on, on that commission that originally started the program. We were able to speak with the people who are on the dissuasion commissions, which are um, those 18 different um, regional groups where people go through once they've been cited. But we were also able to visit a treatment center and talk about the work that they do. And um, it's very holistic. It's obviously healthcare, but it's also about connecting people with employment or housing or um, you know, social, so other social services that they may need or other physical you know, healthcare needs that they have. Um, we visited a um, <clears throat> mobile medical unit, which um, gives out methadone. So the, there, is a, um, there is a van that goes all around um, Lisbon. So this was in, in Lisbon. Um, they do um, five days a week. They go to five different stops. Or I'm sorry, every day of the week, they go to five different stops, and they stop at each place twice a day, and they are there on a regular basis to provide um, methadone to folks. And um, they have seen, again, really good results with um, people who are, who are um, dealing with addiction to be able to have um, you know, an alternative to using heroin or some of the, some of the other drug uses. Um, <clears throat> they also provide health care through these mobile clinics as well. And then we um, went to a, um, a safe use site. So that was something that was really interesting to see. Some people had gone um, to Porto, uh, like came early and went up to Porto and actually saw one where there were um, people who were actually um, using that. We, the one that we visited what was kind of that hour that they used to, to break and to clean everything up. But um, we were able to see um, that they have nurses on site. They have rooms for people who are smoking um, drugs. They have um, rooms for people who are injecting drugs, right? And, and it is done in a, um, in a um, observed area. It's done with um, you know, staffing and, and medical assistance. And it's really, again, to, to for harm reduction purposes of present, preventing um, <clears throat> you know, secondary um, public health impacts like, um, you know, like um, hepatitis or HIV transmission, um, but it's also to help prevent overdoses there. And again, those, the statistics I had on the, um, on the impact of that on their overdose rate was, was pretty impressive. Um, and then we also, and then um, on um, the last day of the trip, we went and we spent some time with the law enforcement there. And this is where um, they do a lot of work around prevention. Um, we heard from a couple different folks that they actually start 
um, prevention around um, the awareness of drug use and addiction, like as they have, they have programs that start in elementary school and primary school. And um, they also do a lot of prevention, though, not just on drug use, but on everything from, um, you know, gender dynamics or um, weapons or radicalization or like the, they, they there's a huge robust prevention program that's done within the schools. There's a whole division of the, um, of the police department um, that does that and it's actually the police that are going into the schools that are doing the presentation that are delivering um, the materials to the students which just seemed so different than what, than what we have here. Um, but that prevention piece was a very robust program and, um, you know, was the one component. I talked a little bit about the harm reduction pieces that they do around the injection sites, around the mobile clinics. Um, we also, you know, got to see the treatment services as well. Um, but it was very interesting because even um, some of the law enforcement folks, the police officers that we talked to there, you know, truly do see um, drug use as a healthcare issue and are, and, um, you know, they've been doing this for 20 years now, and so it's really, they understand, like, the connection to, to services, the connection to, to treatment, and that. There, there was some, um, you know, there is frustration, I think, with their ability to, um, to um, go after the drug dealers. There's, there was just some recent legislation that was just being passed while we were there. Um, that changed um, the amounts that were that considered personal, and I think there was some angst with law enforcement about what those changes in rates would, you know, would do to their ability to engage. So they were still working that out. Um, but but overall, it was incredibly, um, it was incredibly incredibly interesting to see um, just the different take and the different perspectives that they um, that they have seen. Um, there was a, a lot of good conversation. So in addition to being able to visit. Um, <coughs> You know, hear from the folks who started the program, hear from the people who are on the Dissuasion Commission, see some of these um, services and treatment options out in the public, talk to the law enforcement. Um, the ability to, to engage in conversation with the folks who are in the state legislature, with the service providers, with law enforcement, with folks from uh, DOJ and the district attorney's office was a really, um, really incredible opportunity as well. And um, there was a lot of conversation about what we can do and what we can bring back and learn. Um, and I think one of the major things is that we have to have a significant expansion in drug treatment funding facilities and slots. Um, this is a priority, you know, for our behavioral health team, it's a priority um, from the state, from a report that's going to be, um, I think it's going to be out December 1st, where they were taking a look at our state behavioral health system and where the gaps are there. Um, and um, I think it reinforced for me the power of the community-based and community-focused um, access to services, treatment, and housing. I think that was very powerful. It's been very powerful in Portugal, we know. And in talking with the providers, it's been very um, powerful here. And like I said, a lot of those were Measure 110 funded providers who were able to um, make investments. Um, and I think that uh, the other thing was, you know, really recognizing that um, while not everyone who uses drugs is addicted or becomes addicted, for those people who are addicted, that is very much a healthcare issue and that's very much needs to be treated by one. Um, so people with substance use um, disorder need to be met every step of the way as they get closer to, um, um, to their stability and um, you know, possible recovery. And um, there were statistics shared, bless you, there were statistics that were shared about how um, 
you know, how people, in, people who are engaging in services, including harm reduction services, are much more likely to go into treatment. I think they used like five times as much. Um, but it, but um, to me, the, the main takeaway was like, this is not something that people are um, addressing piecemeal. This is something that really they have the, the overall national strategy for this. They have invested in a system of care um, that's available to anyone um, throughout the country. And, um, and they have invested in those connections of setting up a robust system. Um, one of the things I will say is that when I first was listening to the people and they were talking about the history, they were talking about the investments, they were talking about the system that they had set up before they even went to criminalization, like I started to get a little mad because we in Oregon, we know that we have the, um, the fifth lowest investment of, um, of behavioral health, addiction, um, uh, resources and services um, per capita of any, you know, we're the fifth lowest state for that. Um, and we had Measure 110, which was focused on decriminalization. It created services, but those, but it was almost like we were putting the cart before the horse in that we were decriminalizing without having the services, without having the investments in place, and knowing that Portugal had had all these resources in place for you know, over a decade before they even moved to decriminalization, it, it, it just reinforced me, for me the need that we have a system of care, that we have to be making these um, larger investments, and you know, if we're really going to be um, addressing the crisis. Um, a couple of the other um, differences, though, they're not dealing with um, fentanyl at this point. They really don't have a lot of meth at this point. Their main things are um, heroin, marijuana is still illegal in Portugal, and um, they're seeing crack cocaine. So we asked about, you know, hey, we're seeing this, we're seeing these different things. And um, one of the things um, that, um, that doc the doctor said was that, you know, as they've seen different drugs come into their country, they haven't changed their philosophy, they haven't changed the underlying system. What they've changed is they've been adaptable in terms of the treatment, the conversation, the engagement with people and, and um, been that. So that was, you know, I think it's, you know, there was never a question of do we need to like take a step back from decriminalization. It was more like how do we respond in a, in a healthcare way um, to, to what they're seeing in the changes. So we, you know, it looks different here. It's very different in terms of um, the types of drugs. But again, people are still going to need treatment. People still need access to, um, um, to services, people still need access to, to health care, and that's, and that, you know, that's agnostic in terms of that. Um, <clears throat> so I think there was a, you know, a, a takeaway was really a commitment to deeper collaboration and partnerships across the state with providers, with law enforcement, with, um, you know, um, local jurisdictions, with the state, and um, really um, using the next legislative session in the Oregon legislature to, um, have the work of the Joint Commission on Addictions and Community Safety, which um, Senator Lieber um, and Senator Przanski and um, Rep. Nose are all on. Um, having you know, having the, some of this, these takeaways um, funnel up through that in terms of the investments that are needed and the systems that you know that we need to be um, creating. So there will be a lot of conversation about that. I think my takeaway was that taking a taking a step um, to Taking major steps to, to make the investments in healthcare is really important. Going back to criminalization without changing things isn't going to change any of the outcomes that we had previously. We really fundamentally need to be investing in the system 
So, um, and, and doing it, you know, in a, in a major way that really makes up for uh, decades of dis disinvestment um, in our state around these, um, these resources. So, um, one of the things that we're gonna get briefed on, I think in um, probably like in about a month, is our legislative agenda. And so, as we're thinking about our legislative agenda for 2024, I think our government relations are gonna be talking with um, you all about that in the next couple of weeks, really um, calling for additional investments um, in terms of collaboration around the Measure 110 funding and the Measure 110 um, partner, you know, um, organizations that are getting this with the counties and with the local mental health authorities, um, community mental health programs, and coordinated care organizations. So having that um, amending Measure 110 to focus on funds to create more treatment stabilization and detox opportunities for individuals. Um, increasing substantially our state substance use disorder residential capacity um, and um, reaffirming um, some of our commitment to, um, to both um, create a system of care for folks and be working in collaboration, but also um, recognize you know, some of the challenge that still exists there. And one of the, um, I will say the, the last thing, um, one of the things that was really um, interesting was that we had this conversation, and I had an opportunity to really talk to law enforcement and say, you know, what are the things, you know, you hear a lot that Measure 110 actually prohibits the ability to, like, go after drug dealers. I'm like, what? how is that the case? And they're like, it's not actually Measure 110. It's the Boyd decision that was actually a, um, a case that was heard by the um, Oregon um, Court of Appeals and, the, and reaffirmed by the Oregon Supreme Court that basically says, um, someone in law enforcement who, um, you know, there's, a, there's two different things. Um, one is that um, there is, if somebody has drugs, the search and seizure um, requires you, you can't do a search. You can only see, you know, what somebody has out in the open, so you can't necessarily look to see if they have um, more, um, you know, more drugs. And so that limits their ability to, to really investigate if somebody is dealing or using. Um, the other piece, though, is um, there that the board decision was was more specifically around um, the fact that you have to see somebody engaged in dealing in order to um, in order to charge and, and um, arrest them for dealing, and that is um, something that is um, because of how the law is written. So another thing I think in this short session that to um, to ask for is the legislature to make a change um, so that it would be. Um, so that they would add the words that were necessary to really kind of go back to where it was so that law enforcement has more capacity to actually um, to, 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 um, do the, to do their jobs and do their arrests without all of the investigation and increased um, personnel that would be needed to then actually catch somebody in the act of dealing where it was. So, so that was a really interesting thing, and I think the, the intersection, again, with like law enforcement um, decriminalization and then really um, making sure that people who are dealing are held accountable, people who are using and are addicted um, receive the treatment they need. That was, you know, that was a really big thing. So that was a lot. Um, but that, it was an incredibly good experience. I think, like I said, there's a lot, a um, lot of learning that happened, a lot of, um, a lot of, um, I think, wisdom in, in how they are approaching things. But again, um, the overall collaboration that's needed, the overall investment that's needed, that is something that we absolutely, regardless of what happens with Measure 110, you know, we need to, we need to stay strong on that. Right. 
Any questions? I have a couple. Okay, That's yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm curious whether. Oh, and I wanted to pass these. Um, thank you for that. Um, super interesting. Um, I, I'm wondering about the numbers you talked about the um, sort of comparison between overdose deaths um, in Oregon versus Portugal. I'm wondering about the other numbers. Like, have they seen a decrease in um, addiction or drug use? And then have they seen um, an increase in treatment and recovery? So um, versus like a, just a general harm, not just, but versus harm reduction. Yeah, so, um, so, they, so Portugal actually has lower rates of youth use of drugs than other European countries. So they've actually, and I think that's part of their prevention, like their really strong prevention program that you see. Um, you actually um, see a very uh, much lower use of that. And there is um, increased ability to get access to treatment. And um, again, I think that was because as decriminalization was happening in that country, they were also making significant national investments in, um, in, in PSYCAD, in um, the system, um, in, their, in their healthcare system for, um, for treatment. So they were. So it's kind of a boat ban, right? And then I'd, I'd love to see those numbers just as yep. like how the, tr the trend line um, <coughs> works. Obviously, with two decades of mm -hmm. um, experience, and that should you should be able to see some trends after that time period. I um, just on the last point on the your conversations with law enforcement, mm -hmm. um, there has been a focus. There has been a focus on um, sort of the drug dealers here, and it, it seems like just from talking to businesses and just people in neighborhoods, the bigger issue um, is not so much the the drug dealers, but the what oftentimes is just criminality associated with it because people aren't able to hold jobs, and so that the things that come with that. And I'm curious whether they have something that that's not an issue or um or is it and if 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 it isn't an issue how have they dealt with that yeah we didn't i will say we didn't get into that particular question so much i mean we really talked about the engagement that um that the police have with somebody who is using right who is found in possession of drugs we but we did talk about the overall impact of not having um, hardly any guns in Portugal. So they have, they don't have a right to bear arms. In fact, it's very difficult to get a gun in Portugal. Um, they have had, um, so, so police officers have guns, but they very rarely, if ever, like are engaging in the public and being concerned about somebody having a gun or a, le a lethal weapon. There are, you know, there's some instances they talked about, like some neighborhoods, you, you'll see a knife used or something like that, but that's, that's really the extent of it. And, they, and so we did talk about the difference, you know, um, in terms of, of their ability to engage with the public, their ability to be out in the community and not having to worry about that. Yeah. And just my last question, because I know others yeah, yeah. as will have them. Um, Wondering if the group had, um, during your time there, did you get presented like people have a different point of 
point of view and like what lessons might be learned out of that just sometimes like hearing from uh, critics sometimes give you a sense of like places where um, you know changes could be made or where maybe they haven't quite got it yet so I'm curious yeah I mean they have been doing it for two decades right so they so it's a very and there was a lot of national um, agreement that this was a step that they needed to take that addiction was a was a national crisis that needed um, investment. I will say the um, and I again I I wasn't able to go on this part of the trip, but there there were several people who went up to Porto, and had a conversation with the mayor, had a conversation with law enforcement up there, um, which was they were very interested. So so Rep Nose um, actually wrote pretty lengthy a, a piece about his experience um, there because that that was the town that was highlighted in the Washington Post article where they were like. They want to go. They want to go back. They don't. They don't like this. And he's like, that was not what we heard at all. We heard that, you know, they have concerns about this change in in the amount that people can have and still be considered personal, and how that might make it harder to um, to figure out if somebody's dealing or not. So there were concerns around that. There were impacts on um, the decrease of um, like disinvestment in public housing, and so. There, so the fact that Porto had invested so much in, in um, subsidized or social, they call it social housing, but like what we would call public housing, was like they were very proud that they had made those kinds of investments. And, um, and, and so there was, you know, so even I think the folks that are, um, were portrayed as naysayers, like don't, don't want to necessarily go back from to criminalizing, they just want to have you know, more resources available, more housing available, and and really some clarity in terms of how they're engaging with people. Great. One so of the I'll things they were, with yeah, and, and one of the things that they were really, they were actually, um, they had opened like a, a, a safe um, use site up in Porto that they were able to, that group was able to visit, and that had been open for about a year, and so they were actually able to, you know, that was something that they were kind of proud to show off and, and say like this is something that we've just invested in. There's only there's only a, a couple of those um, currently um, in the country. So like I said, there was a couple in um, in Lisbon and then there was that one in Porto. Yeah. Do you have any questions? Thank you, uh, and um, sorry I missed the first well, I'm gonna couple pass of these minutes. Um, I'm just I uh, really appreciate the summary, and uh, I did have some questions about. Um, so, it, you know, the differences with Portugal are so massive in terms of what we face in Oregon. Um, the no fentanyl is a huge one right now, um, but. They also have universal health care, so I think that makes it easier to, I believe, do they have, I, I think, I'm making assumptions, but. Um, no, they do have universal health care there. And I think that makes it, you know, easier again to coordinate care um, and treat substance use disorder like the illness that it is, um, the health care issue. But um, we, are, we are far from universal health care here, sadly. Um, and there's that huge infrastructure in place, no guns, all of that. Um, I'm curious, and I apologize if you mentioned this before I got here, but what is their, do they have homelessness like we do in their major cities? Yeah, they do. So um, so when I was in Lisbon, you definitely saw people who were, who had, um, 
there's a lot of like cardboard that people would lay down and then have like a blanket or a sleeping bag. Um, but they didn't have homelessness in the same way where um, people were, had tents up like all day long. They, they actually, people who were sleeping outside, um, you saw them in the morning starting to gather up their things and, um, and clear up. But that was, we were the, the, the we played, we're, we were on a pretty heavily um, like retail area where the hotels were. It was like in one of the, the main streets in downtown and there were like ridiculous like stores, like really super fancy stores there. And so even in that like pretty, you know, um, posh part of town, like you definitely saw people who were experiencing homelessness. Um, but, but again, it wasn't like the, that tents and things were up all the time. They, people were kind of got into the, you know, you could, like I said, I saw people like in the mornings gathering up their things and kind of cleaning up their areas. Here's a, just a side tangent, but did they say where those people went during the day, <laughs> given that we're maybe going to be looking at similar things? No, I mean, we, they didn't, they didn't talk about where they, where they went during the day. I mean, I think they were just, you know, just walking around, but you know, like, um, um I will say that, um, again, like from the, the, the conversations I had with the folks that went to Porto, Porto had, I think it was like 12% of their budget go to the social housing, whereas like a city like Lisbon, I think it was only like 3%. So, so again, I think, um, that kind of, like seeing housing as a, as a resource that is needed to help folks to address, I mean, not just homelessness or addiction, but you know, the ability of somebody to be um, stably housed no matter what their situation was, um, was I think a takeaway from those folks who had gone up to Porto. That's, well, that's, that's interesting because that's, I mean, it, it feels, and I'm wondering if you had conversations about this as well because uh, do they, have the places for people to go after the treatment because I think that's one of the big disconnects um, you know in the US but particularly in Oregon and particularly in the Portland area is um, you know we, we need everything and investing in treatment is so important but if there's not the place to go after treatment the investments in treatment are sort of I mean, almost harmful or wasted money in many cases. And so do they have the places to go for people when they go through detox or treatment in, in Portugal or in Lisbon? Yeah, I mean, and, and I, think, um, I think the difference is in the, the percentage of people who are experiencing homelessness that they, they engage with for addiction, right? So, so I think um, at one place we went to, um, the treatment center, they said about 20% of the people that they are engaging with are experiencing homelessness. So that means 80% aren't. So those 80% yeah. have a place to go, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's a smaller, a smaller number of people who are actually needing that kind of housing. And, and that's where I think we had the conversation about the importance of investing in that the, those public housing opportunities for people. Um, to bring it back here, though, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons for me that have investing in a stabilization center where people are going to be able to stay from like 30 to 60 to 90 days after detox or after treatment is such a really important investment for our community. Where do they go after that is one of my, I mean, it is that longer term. Where do they go after the 60 days stabilization? I think, I mean, we can, and we, that's one of those the key elements that, um, I mean, and I, I can do my presentation too, but that is sort of a theme across the board that I'm noticing, um, especially putting it all together, um, going to a bunch of 
different conferences, it's like everyone is crying out for the what next. So did the stabilization is, is great. Like I said, we need everything, but where do people go after 30 days? Um, yeah, I that's mean, that's different. where, I mean, I think that's the conversation that we have had and we will continue to have about the need for recovery-oriented housing. I mean, halfway houses, right, like Oxford houses, some of those, like, supportive communities like that. And, you know, just to reiterate, the, the continued need for, to develop housing for folks in general, right? That's, that's the ultimate solution that we need to have. Yeah. One, one other question for law, in law enforcement there, and I've heard, um, this being talked about a bunch here is, um, did they confiscate the, uh, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. That is, that's another thing that um, law enforcement has, a, has the ability to confiscate drugs immediately yeah. when they have it. So it's, it's taken away, it's destroyed, like that is, and, and it's destroyed because if it's a small amount, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's decriminalized, so it's not, like they need to save it for a case against the person, right. uh, unless it was again above the above the thresholds for a personal amount. But yes, that is that is a, a difference there in our law enforcement. We're like, oh. you know, like they were just they were just like you know they were they were you know I think a little envious of that. So um, I want to make sure we have enough time to go through your um, your um, um, experiences and and have time for questions on that. Um, yep. So take it away, Commissioner Myron. Okay. We have a presentation that organizes it um, that um, I'll share with everyone. So I went to, there have been a bunch of things over the past, um, I don't know, it is a um, over the past uh, couple of months, and um, and they all sort of revolve around these issues in many ways, and so um, just wanted to summarize some. The one I'll focus on really is the uh, sobering summit in Washington D.C. and um, um, so. First, um, really amazing opportunity. I literally have no idea still how it came about, but an opportunity to join leaders from across Oregon and Washington, uh, sort of at the county, state, uh, agency level in philanthropy, um, invited to the White House to talk about impacts of administration policies at the state and local level. And so it was, it was really amazing. And to hear about, to be able to share some of what we were, we've been doing in Multnomah County with um, use of ARPA funds, the Inflation Reduction Act. So, um, you know, brought up the Rockwood Environmental Justice and Climate Resilience Project, uh, the Reimagining Justice Grant in the Coley neighborhood, um, but the earthquake ready Burnside Bridge, put in a plug. Um, I hope you would be proud, mm -hmm. uh, Chair. And um, but but talked about the importance of that, and um, it was great to hear both both to share what we are doing and to hear from others across the uh, Pacific Northwest what they're doing, and in Oregon, um, we also could talk about areas where we saw some some challenges and really fentanyl and the the mental health crisis were substance use disorder, mental health were the biggest things that 
that people were elevating there. Um, in our introduction, one of the pictures is Deb Holland, you know, Secretary of the Interior was, uh, it was really super cool. Um, so fun, made the connection too between the federal, state, local, so often you feel like your government's not, what is your government doing? And this kind of said, oh, actually, it, we're making those connections, so that was great. Um, then got home and then went to the uh, Oregon Leadership Council for Behavioral Health, had their annual conference, and that was really phenomenal. Again, this was behavioral health leaders from across the state, and there was an opportunity to engage around all of these issues, like the crucible for all of these issues. This is what everyone is facing across our state, and some of the innovative approaches, considerations, challenges. Um, and across the board, there was this sort of universal outcry begging for the places to go after treatment and short-term stabilization, recognizing that that's the challenge. And all the dollars we invest in these amazing programs, um, they're wasted if we don't have places for people to go. So that recovery housing component is sort of universally looked at as the most important priority in terms of where dollars can go to be able to move people through our systems and close the revolving door. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, there was a panel and Tony Vesna and Recovery Northwest folks were, were on it. So it was, you know, a little bit of local, but it actually did highlight a lot of innovation happening across the state and a lot that we don't have in Multnomah County that we could need to build. Um, and then just last week, I, I'm losing track, but the agent, Attorney General had a convening around the fentanyl crisis and that was really amazing. Again, leaders from across the state and what was beautiful about it was the, it, it was a focus both for behavioral health and public safety and that intersection um, and collaboration is essential to move any of the places that have moved the dial on anything innovative around behavioral health or even not innovative. Um, it relies on that kind of, um, of collaboration. So there are projects from different counties across the country, I mean across the state that were highlighted Washington is incredible. They have just an, a network of opportunities. They're building the, a true um, triage, stabilization, referral, sobering, you know, combination center. It's because they had everyone at the table and developed a agreed upon plan. Um, they, they are building that work. And um, the one person who's been at literally everything um, that I attended, except the White House, was the Allison Noyce, who's the director of CODA, who is, is doing this work in Washington um, County. <laughs> and so one thing uh, that was really interesting was the research, so much of the research that's done in our county here at OHSU. Um, Dr. Cordes uh, is, leads, um, I think it's a research, 
engine there at OHSU around addiction. And he just, he was so good. I want to get a copy of his slide presentation. I can share it with you all. Um, but he talked about dispelling some of the myths, myths that are out there around substance use disorder, around treatment. And, um, you know, one of the ones I think that struck people at the conference was really, um, you know, that he didn't use the word compulsion. I can't, I can't remember, that, but it's like having there be serious consequences for use of substances is, is important. Um, that rather than that not working and that people need to just be ready for treatment and decide when they're going to go into treatment, a lot of people can, but many, if not most people, need sort of that thing that, and, and talked about the, the disease process itself and addiction and the brain changes. Like, you're not going to overcome it unless there's a major reason to change, have the brain chemistry make it worse to do the behavior associated with addiction um, than to keep using. Um, I raised the question, they had a panel, and it was Andy Mendenhall uh, and Dr. Cordes and uh, Maxine Dexter and the Attorney General, and asking them, I asked about the question of a public health emergency and declaration of that because a number of jurisdictions and states have done that across the country. They were, Maxine Dexter was very supportive. Dr. Cordes said, I wrote a letter two years ago signed by all of the, like, all of the organizations that do this work begging for a for a public health emergency to be declared, we, we absolutely need it. And so I just want to re-up my plea um, based on even more that I've learned for us as a, as a county board to declare fentanyl a public health emergency um, in our county. And there are the benefits that they talked about as happening from that kind of declaration include um, just really elevation of the issue itself. It, it makes a difference to people. The convenings that happen around that, key is an emergency operations approach um, and removing funding restrictions so that you can streamline investments even if it's not more money. Washington County is doing, like I said, exemplary work it's consistency and messaging. They do the One Pill Kills initiative, working with the um, DEA and others in the schools, in the, like it's the same message in the sheriff's office, in the county public health, and it really does make a difference. So there are a lot of opportunities and we can consolidate those using a declaration of public health emergency. Um, the Sobering Center Summit was really a highlight, and it was um, sponsored by the National Sobering Collaborative, and that's a group serving people with harmful substance use uh, outside the traditional emergency systems. And um, so their mission has been to support the, ex I've written it here, but support the expansion of and advance best practices for sobering care services to provide short-term, easy to access, and safe environments for recovery from intoxication, not from substance use disorder, but from intoxication. And I think that's a key thing that was emphasized throughout the conference. 
So what they did, um, the focus was filling the gap in substance use care, and they're from all over the countries, there were probably 20 or more different groups that came in from different jurisdictions and shared their models, their governance structures, their funding streams, really how they put the pieces together to make these things happen in their jurisdictions. And the thing is there were, you know, a whole bunch of different ways to do it, but they all had the same underlying goals and vision for this component of a substance use disorder continuum. So it's really diversion from ERs and jails um, and safety for individuals and the public. The focus isn't, you know, they, they said it can be a gateway, it can be a connection to detox, shelter, all of these other things, but that is not the goal of the sobering centers. And I think there's, in, in a lot of the conversations that happen, there's confusion about the language we use, what the purpose is, um, so much wanting kind of, we need so much, it's like we want everything to be everything, and I think Commissioner Brim Edwards, you alluded to this in, in our conversation last week about sobering centers, but I just wanna elevate that, um, because with Beacon for four years, we had the same conversations that are sort of, seem to be almost starting again now, that we can build to the everything model, but we need to start with something that will move the dial and is really important, and so, the sobering center seems to fit fit that. And then we talked a lot about words um, because there is so much confusion and just to reemphasize, sobering is coming down from intoxication of whatever kind. And it's um, basically the old concept of sleeping it off. And you know, in the old days, sobering centers were drunk tanks um, and they let people slept it off, left our for a few hours. One thing that was clear from all the people that presented too is most, a lot of what they're seeing is still alcohol intoxication. So alcohol intoxication is still, alcohol is still the biggest killer um, from uh, use disorder and we, we should not be forgetting alcohol. But there are all sorts of ways to sober. But it's short term addressed to, it's about intoxication and safe being safe for the individual and the community. Detox is that process by which people clear substances from their bodies. That can be more dangerous. Um, sobering isn't usually, isn't dangerous. Detox can entail physical withdrawal and is dangerous. So a facility for detox needs a lot more oversight, thinking about medical management, it's a medical model. Sobering is more of a public safety model with a little bit of a health overlay just to monitor people so they don't go into withdrawal. So, you know, I shared some of this with you before, but themes, there are themes across the country, everywhere that does it, there's these common themes. So it's, who are the people we're serving? Where do they come from? You know, are they from hospitals, jails, self-referral, shelters, proactive outreach teams? The criteria for acceptance to the center, they are variable across the board, but again, there's common themes, and the concept of stable enough really struck me, because everyone's like, well, they're gonna be, are they gonna be too unstable? The ERs where we see unstable people, but stable enough means maybe a little bit unstable, but they can, 
function. They're intoxicated, but not too intoxicated. You know, they can't be in active withdrawal or too at risk for active withdrawal. Like there's, there's a lot of findings that have been now consolidated across the board. So, you know, how to transport people. Like, we, fortunately, we don't have to reinvent these wheels, and they are being consolidated by this group in best practices that, um, that really can be tailored, almost like a little smorgasbord of what, we, what best fits for our community right now, given what we're facing and um, whether it's the type of substances they look at. And I've heard people say, you know, you can't do meth, you can't do different things. They do it all. There's centers across the country and it's sobering from meth and they make it safer. Um, the types of services providing, the staffing, big consideration, but peers are across the board. Length of stay, generally, it is short. It's usually hours up to 23 hours, but people, whatever jurisdiction they were in, acknowledged the need that, you know what, they're outliers, and a lot of times people might need to stay longer because of the substance or because there's nowhere for them to go and you don't feel they're safe to leave at that point. So, like, there's different considerations, but everyone focus, like, keep your eye on the big, the big picture, not don't go down the rabbit holes because there are so many. Um, the funding and billing is ridiculously complicated, and uh, they, um, oh, we can, I think, move on. Sorry. Uh, there's, you know, California is, California is doing a really great job. Um, CalAIM allows for Medicaid reimbursement for sobering centers. It's not allowed in Oregon at this point. I'm not sure we would get there. But even if they're reimbursed by Medicaid, the day rate for any of these types of recovery-based services are so low, and there are so many restrictions with Medicaid, that unrestricted alternative funding sources or added funding sources are essential. Um, like, you can't rely on Medicaid and be like, oh, Medicaid's going to fund that, because it won't. Um, challenges that aren't, you know, I think are really important that were elevated here. EMTALA, that I live by, it's the Emer Emergency Medicine Treatment Active Labor Act. Um, if someone has is in an emergency, they need medical evaluation and stabilization. Um, federal law, huge um, regulations around that. Sobering centers do not fall under EMTALA because they are not emergency. You know, they're diverting from emergency people who are low risk and low acuity. So that's great. Others, um, you know, the sort of concept of beacon in the old days with triage, stabilization, referral, like the one-stop shop for everything, that does fall under EMTALA. So the cost differentials there from an emergency department sort of level of care versus a sobering center, huge. So the investments don't need to be as much by orders of magnitude for kind of a sobering center. And that was interesting to me. Talked about different licensing, credentialing models, um, challenges that were universal um, really are the, one, the ones that stuck, struck me as being challenges here, I think we'll need to overcome, but there needs to be something linking it all together, and I think you alluded to this, and Portugal has links, you know, but um, 
but we certainly don't. So how to work on that and you know the concept of too many cooks in the kitchen um there needs to be a co broad coalition of involved people but when too many people or there's not the linkages are doing this or it's fragmented it's not going to work so i'm glad that commissioner brim edwards you'll be like bringing that home i hope and we can talk more about it but uh huge um Restrictions on funding um, was talked about and capacity for where people go next, both at treatment beds, but even more so, again, to allow flow through from those, the, uh, the recovery housing. I'm two slides, I think, on. Um, so, and then I'm almost done. There's some really innovative approaches that are great. And again, I think one of the things you mentioned, uh, Chair, from Portugal is something that uh, I saw the, those mobile teams and whether it's mobile for methadone, other treatment. One more slide, I think. Okay. Um, oh, no, next one. Thanks. Here. Innovation. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Um, it's there. Uh, those mobile teams and um, so some one jurisdiction had integrated health teams following all Narcan reversals so you know EMS goes out there and reverse whatever then the team follows up and can really rally around the person um, one group's doing geospatial mapping where intoxicated people are picked up and identifying hot spots that I think there's an um, effort that um, an individual is doing, but but it can be really um, uh, systematized. And one mayor's office, this I loved this concept, but <laughs> they have a team of scientists from a variety of fields, fields studying the science of civic interventions. I think this might have been DC, but it was just really great. Like they, it's putting all the pieces together, and that was a theme that flowed through. And then just where. Houston, I think, was a, the one model I wanted to elevate here just because it was the Houston Recovery Center, so sort of behavioral health, and then they had a sobering center, center multi-visit patient program. Sounds a little fused, you know, the frequent user systems engagement. And their partnership, the goal was to reduce ED utilization. So started by the recognition our crisis systems first responders whomever are bearing the cost of people not entering systems in the right place and getting what they need so they had you know 9900 unique unsheltered individuals huge number of hospital missions by a large number uh, a small number of people huge number of EMS police transports etc and it was the combination of housing instability, substance use disorder, behavioral health barriers, incarceration. And so they got together the Greater Houston Collaborative and um, partnered with the health department and the city to design a recovery program for people cycling through emergency departments. They developed core pathways, care pathways for people. But starting at the sobering center, Doing that first and recognizing its place was the essential component able to divert people away from the higher crisis centers. So they found massive, like 
shockingly high cost savings for the stabilization and outreach type service um, compared with hospital stays. And so it's really, as we think about this and where sobering fits, it also has to be thinking how to build in fuse, how to build in all of the homeless services, our con uh, continuum of care, et cetera. Um, hospitals should be paying, they should be really interested in all of this because they pay the most. They bear the highest burden of cost for people coming to the ED when they don't need emergency department levels of care. And they also, a number of places point out, said there are multiple economies that hold the status quo in place. This is a quote. He said, that's why the process needs to be externalized, like this Greater Houston Collaborative. So sort of looking at who, who's going to be doing this work so that it really is in the best interest of the people that are being served. Um, and funding following the client. We hear this a lot, you know, stop slicing and dicing people. And so um, acknowledge this is a place for people to be temporarily safe. They will come back. That doesn't constitute failure. Um, and that's, you know, ending with the prevention, intervention, and treatment work. Recovery is possible for everyone. And um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's, there's a lot of wheels. Um, we just have to choose the wheel that works for us. Um, and so that's, those are my takeaways from a whole bunch of different opportunities um, I've been fortunate to attend over the past month or two. So any questions? What? No, I always have questions. Mm -hmm. Well, first, um, it'd be great to get um, your slides um, to be able to sort of go through them again and also have them just inform the um, ongoing work and appreciate the packet you brought back, um, except for the, the portion of Portuguese. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I found that the, the translation materials were um, really interesting. It would be great to circulate those as well um, as we have discussions about um, ballot measure 110 and the county's uh, response. Um, I'm going to focus just because I have that sobering center assignment um, on something from that. And I'm curious um, what the trends are here or nationally. Um, we're, we're obviously focused a lot on fentanyl because of um, just the, the impacts it's having on, on people and um, the strength of it and um, just learning different ways of treatment. But just going back to alcohol is sort of just this sort of foundational issue, and I'm curious what we're seeing or what the national trends are in terms of alcohol use. Is it being substituted by other substances, or is it in combination, or do we do we still have, like, we still got to focus on this, this core issue because that really hasn't changed, even though we have all these other new um, substances that are circulating in our communities? I think it's of all of the above I know that's not a great answer but it's um, that alcohol use and, and I'll, I'll double check I don't want to um, wrong answers uh, but is continuing to increase and um, you know it's it's leading cause a leading cause of death uh, and it's 
often still just there is still a just alcohol component um, in what we're seeing, but it is often more and more poly substance use. So it is complicated by meth use or fentanyl use. And what we're starting to see some now, and but in, I think in the East Coast, on the East Coast, what I was hearing is that crack cocaine is, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it really? So we're, we have to stay, like, keep up with the substances, you know, it's like got the P2P meth, we got the trank, we got the, like, there's so much, but what, if we have the systems in place that are ready to res respond, re like, not to chase whatever substance is coming around, have a baseline of alcohol and then build on that because you have the systems in place to, um, you know, in some places for meth, for example, they have, for meth intoxication, they've added on like activation rooms. So people, like things for people to do, like almost like fidget rooms. But so people who are kind of amped up can have all this stuff they can do, they can be in there together. But, um, you know, addressing the different needs, but having the baseline and starting with sobering from, from alcohol is a good baseline, but we need way more. So just to make sure I sort yeah. of, um, just summarize from a layperson standpoint. So there's still definitely a need so that was under, underlying, but that so it's not a, a mutually exclusive. Um, Correct. Exactly. So, so we need to still focus on that because it's still a huge issue. To your point about um, alcohol still um, being the largest um, killer, but that also there's these other pieces and so it's a add-on versus like we don't need that we don't need this like the traditional sobering center anymore because it's not needed but it's still needed but these other pieces i would add though with evolution of substance use disorder even alcohol the the traditional sobering center would not be appropriate for that anymore so we kind of need like we need to evolve to a new baseline even for alcohol but yes Okay, great. Plus. And then, because I know I have questions and we can do a deep yeah. dive later, yeah. but the other thing that sort of um, I'm curious about is why California reimburses, reimburses for sobering centers and Oregon does not. And is that is that a big issue? I mean, I know money is always an issue, but I'm wondering, is, like, is that a big issue? Um, yes. yes. And if, if so, like, what what is it that they're doing or have done that allows them to have that sort of funding stream so the way, so. Did they get a Medicaid waiver for that? Well, they, it's the 1115 waiver. So yeah. they just opted to use the California has a very functional state health authority, basically. So they are able to um, really pursue reimbursement, investment, innovative processes to use Medicaid in different ways. Oregon does not have that. So we, like the idea that we are, you know, Medicaid maybe, hopefully we hear about it being used for um, the waiver for recovery-based housing, maybe. But it's like, we're already so far behind the ball in being able to implement that. And it's not clear what it's going to be. And there's all this like confusion around it. So our Oregon Health Authority has not been like a California in addressing those issues. But it's that level that it would happen, and it, it could happen in Oregon like it happened in California, just isn't being pursued. Was there anybody from the state at the um, the National Sobering 
Um, there was not anyone from the state. There were different county representatives that were there, which was really cool, but um, not the state. I'll save the rest of my questions for later. So, but the one, just one quick. Sorry, the SAMHSA. Uh, so Washington D.C. They're they're doing a really innovative approach as well. Um, that might be another good model for Portland. But there were three high-level SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental, wait, Mental Health, Mental Health, whatever, Addiction Mental Health uh, Agency Administration Agency. Uh, overseeing these issues. Three high-level people were there who were involved in some, sort of making a lot of these rules, and they were running things by the group. So there was a whole, you know, an hour and a half of just back and forth with them, Q&A, that were asking some of these questions and talking about the barriers, like, why can't we do this? Mobile crisis billing with Medicaid is huge issue. Um, so. It was, you know, and I have those people's numbers. It, there's opportunities, but um, I don't know where it was going. Anyway, yeah, SAMHSA. <laughs> and I would just add, I, I think that getting some of the SAMHSA and some of the other approval for, um, you know, you talk about mobile crisis or even for sobering the um, the presumption of coverage, right, is a is a huge piece in order to take advantage of some of this. I don't know if. I, and we can ask our government relations folks, but understanding how California was able to get that particular use of the 1115 waiver versus some of the ways that we're using it up here. Like, I think that's a that's a really important question. Um, I really appreciate all of the um, information that you have brought back. I think there's a lot here. You know, I think for me, and as um, Commissioner Brim Edwards does this work, and as we're engaging in this as a county in terms of our investments, like, recognizing that the needs of sobering have changed, as, as you said, even for alcohol, and making sure that whatever is created has a has that triage point so that just like when somebody's brought to their to our jails and they have such a high level of medical need that they're actually like, we can't take them, they need to go to the emergency department, like recognizing, um, and we shouldn't be asking first responders, or I'm sorry, like police, we shouldn't be asking law enforcement to do that kind of triage, right? So to, to have that ability um, for staffing of the sobering or the receiving center, or whatever, whatever the name is, so that whatever, you know, so that there's an understanding of what the level of care that somebody's able to receive in a sobering center versus what they, what they aren't able to, like, you know, if they have medical needs that are above and beyond that. I think that's, for me, um, having these conversations about what what a sobering center can and can't be and making sure that's really clear and, and talking to, you know, all, all of our healthcare folks and partners around that. I think that, to me, that's the, that's the important piece, right? Like, so that's, and so I'm, because it sounded like when you were talking even about like Houston, right? Like there was that like stable enough, like somebody is stable enough that they can be there, but then other folks, it's not the most appropriate place for them. It's, but no, yeah. you're, I mean, I think that's exactly a, one of the big key points that over the other years that sort of went through the whole uh, conference and across the different jurisdictions that we're talking about is who makes the determination and where do they make it, you know? Is it, most of it were in the field, the stable enough determination was made. So that was the point where people either were they're applying to the sobering center or they go to jail or ER or whatever. 
And so how many criteria that fit that? But again, there's, and, and there was law enforcement. Washington, D.C. really involved law enforcement in the conversation, so does Houston. And so talking to them, um, and, and I'm having them really presenting, I think that's, uh, but having those, that information, um, how they handle the risk and malpractice even that they could be subject to, because it's scary, um, that is the key. Is, mm -hmm. And those, but the beauty is that a lot of the questions, you know, that's part of this, the, that process, but just deciding on a sobering center and kind of a lot of the building blocks for that um, can be done in real time before or as those decisions are being made as well. So it's one of the many considerations, um, but it's sort of a, a specific and it has to involve law enforcement partners, first responders, everyone um, at that table to understand and identify barriers. But yeah, scale enough where you can get out. Yeah. Thank you. So I think that concludes our conversation for today. Um, just to really appreciate um, everybody's questions, the conversation, as I said, um, uh, you weren't here, Commissioner Myram, at the beginning I said that uh, Commissioner Segman did visit um, a receiving center and got to see what that model, which is very similar, and another one of those like definitions between sobering center and receiving center, like it's, it seems very similar to me. Um, but so we'll hopefully get cl um, clarity on that. I know that OHA is putting together some definitions, so that'll be important to see what they come up with. Um, but um, appreciate the conversation today. We will be reconvening on Thursday morning at 9.30, where our first order of business will be a swearing-in ceremony. The, 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 the um, you know, you're already official, but this will be the ceremonial welcoming of you to the board. So we'll look forward to that. Um, so thanks, everyone. With that, we are 